and, and your work, Lord, that we have just been partakers. We haven't earned, we haven't merited, and yet we have received, Lord, an invitation to become your... Well, saints, if you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, this morning. We covered through on Wednesday um, the first 14 verses, and so we're taking our time through this. But this morning, I do want to focus on verse 9. And it's, it's one of these passages that if you are familiar with this miracle, familiar with this event that takes place in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, we as a church, we as Christians call it the feeding of the 5,000. Now, uniquely, out of all the miracles that Jesus does, this is the one miracle that is in all four Gospels. A lot of the miracles will be in, in the, the three. Some will just be in John. But there are certain miracles that are in one Gospel or the another. This is the only sign that Jesus does. This is the only miracle that he does that is in reality in all four Gospels. But although they are in all four Gospels, John depicts something unique. John depicts something amazing. And I want to do, before we read this text here in verse 9, is I actually want to read to you the other Gospels and their account of what it is that we're looking at. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, is going to simply declare this. Matthew 14, verse 16 says, But Jesus said to them, as far as the, the, the disciples, he said, They do not need to go away, speaking of the multitudes. You give them something to eat. And so they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. So understand the context. There's a multitude. They need to provide. Jesus says, You do that. And they said, We have five loaves, and we have two fish. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, where he makes the declaration of this, in verse 37 through 39, what it's declared is this. In Mark 6, 37, but he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, where, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. So again, we see the multitude and we see the depiction. There are five loaves and there are two fish. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, and this is kind of amazing because Luke is usually the detailed one, but not as detailed as John is going to be. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 12 through 14, it makes this declaration. When the day began to wear near, wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. Verse 13, he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said, just make them sit down in a group of 50s. And now we come to the Gospel of John. 
Now understand, each one of the Gospels said very specifically five loaves to fish. None of them mentioned the word lad. None of them mentioned there's a small child. They just simply said, oh, we have five loaves and two fish. John is going to uniquely mention that there is a small child. He's going to distinctly mention that these are not just normal bread, but it's considered barley loaves. And what John does, he's mentioned there are two just little fish. And I want to read through this portion now that you understand the context of the other Gospels. Let's look at John chapter 6, verse 9. And it says this, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now, why does John do this? Why does John depict something the other Gospels do not? Well, keep in mind that if we're all in the same room and we all see an event, some of us are going to focus on other things more than, than other people will. Some of us will see little details here and there where others will simply just avoid those details. John uniquely declares of this, there is a lad here. The term actually means there's a small child. It's a small child. And then it says this, and he has five barley loaves. And we're going to see what barley is in just a moment because what, what, what barley is, is barley would be considered the insignificant grain. It's the one that doesn't have a lot of value. So you have a small child with these barley loaves and two small fish. Little, small, insignificant, not of great value. And yet what Jesus does is this. He uses this to bless 5,000 men plus women plus children. See, we call it the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. The, the term should be the feeding of the 5,000 men. Plus women, plus children. So it's not just looking at just 5,000. There's a passage I want you to put at the header of your notes, and it's important for you to recognize this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, let me simply read this portion to you. It says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now, I love the fact that he doesn't say that God is able to, to make some grace abound. And he doesn't say that, that you will mostly have some sufficiency in most things that you'll have a lot he doesn't say that. I want you to read this with me again. God is able to make to you all grace abound. The term actually means superabound. He says he's able to make all grace, not, not just some, not most, but all grace superabound to you that you always, you understand, not just sometimes, not most, you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. And you're thinking, I don't have that much. I'm not all that and more. Do you understand that you can have an insignificant amount 
that you're willing to give to Jesus. I have a little bit of time. I'm willing to give it to you. I have a little bit of income. I'm willing to give it to you. Do you understand? Whatever you give to him, he's able to make super abound. Like this little boy who had insignificant barley loaves and two small fish. When they're putting Jesus' hands and he gives God thanks. It's able to, as he gives it to his disciples, they give it to the people. And understand, the disciples are not the supplier. Jesus is always the supplier. He is always the source of all things. Now, when he becomes the source and you give it to him, he's able to make it super abound. And I think this is the heart that I want you to understand of what God is able to do. And this is what we're going to see here this morning in this text. So none of the other gospels mention the term lad. Here, John, he mentions that it is a small child. And then he goes on and he says there are five barley loaves and they're two small fish. Now, I want to just take you through a little bit of Scripture so that you can understand the significance of barley. And it is important. It's not just a word that John throws out so that he can say, I just want to be different than the other guys. There's a distinct reason that he's doing the term barley at this point. Now, remember what had happened. If you're familiar with this text, in verse 4, it makes this statement. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So this is the Passover time. This is what's happening. Now, if you are familiar with the very first time the word barley is used in Scripture, it's actually used in, in connotation that we're going to see close to the Passover. There's a portion of Scripture in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter... Let me get this here. Yeah, in Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 31 and verse 32, we're looking at the one instance where God is bringing the plagues upon Egypt, and he's going to bring hail. And what it does is this, in Exodus 9, verse 31 and verse 32, the very first time that barley is ever used in the scripture, it says this, now the flax... And the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head of the flax, was in bud, and the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So understand what barley is. Barley is the first of the grains. It's important because there's a wave offering and it's the first fruits. It's the first of the grains. But I want you to understand that although it is the first of the grains, it's not the best of the grains. I don't know how many of you pursue stores that distinctly make barley bread. Now, how many of you like, oh, I can't wait to have some barley bread? And, and most of you like, no, I want wheat bread, maybe rye bread, but not so much barley bread. Now, the amazing thing about barley, that we had barley on the farm, but we gave it to the cattle. <laughs> we gave it to the horses. It wasn't for us. We didn't grind it and make bread out of it like, oh, man, we're going to give our cows the best. 
And then, then we'll eat, we'll eat, you know. No, no, we would literally just give that to the, to the cattle. A couple of verses I want you to be aware of. The first is found in 2 Kings chapter 7. And it makes this distinction, and I just, I find these things amazing in my own head and my own heart. But I want you to understand the insignificance of what this lad is bringing. He's not bringing wheat bread. He's not bringing the best bread. He's bringing barley bread. In 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, Elisha, declaring that there is going to be a miracle to feed this, you know, the capital of Samaria when they're literally starving to death, eating their children, makes this statement, in 2 Kings chapter 7, Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah, a fine flour, shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Do you understand? You got fine flour, and then you got barley. So if you don't have a lot of money, and you still want to eat not the good stuff, but you want to eat for a while, you buy the barley. In the book of Revelation, let me read to you just one portion here in Revelation chapter 6, verse 6, when they're declaring the woes that are going to come with the seals. And it says this for the third seal. Revelation 6, verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. In other words, one quart of wheat for a day's wage is what he's saying. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. You, you want to see where I'm going here? You can get one good day's worth of good wheat, good, good flour for bread. Or you can get this substandard. You can get the substandard, and you can get three quarts. You can literally, for three days, eat the, the barley. And so I want you to see that this is the reality to what barley is. One other passage I just want to share with you, just because as a farmer, I know it to be true. And I want you to see that even in scriptures, they understood these things. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 28, it talks about people bringing to Solomon provisions for everything that Solomon needs to govern. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 28, it makes a statement, they also brought barley and straw to the proper place for horses and steeds. <laughs> Do you understand that they don't give to the king barley to feed your, your, your servants? barley to feed yourself. They said, oh yeah, we're going to bring barley to feed your horses. So when this young man, and none of the other gospels point this out, when this young lad, this little boy brings little fish and John says, barley loaves. I want you to understand the provision that we're seeing here is humble humble. And it's important for you to realize that it's not extravagant. What God does is this. He takes the, the, the smallest amounts, the most humble offerings, 
and he turns it into this miracle that is so keyed in that all four Gospels record it, and it's the only miracle that all four Gospels record. And I'm so grateful that John comes in and he pipes in. But he pipes in. It's at the time of the Passover where the first of the grains, the barley, is lifted up at this wave offering. And this young lad has this very humble, humble offering that he brings to the Lord. And he brings these five barley loaves and then he brings these two small fish. It would be as if I said, I'm going to supply a lunch afterwards. And what I do is I bring tack and spam. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar to what tack is. Tack is simply this. It is flour. It is water. It is salt. And it is not good. But that's all it is. Now, if I want to make it worse... I will make it barley flour and water and salt and spam. Now, for those of you that don't know what spam is, I don't want to ruin your appetite. It's just parts that have a lot of salt, so it lives for a while. And the great thing is, is it comes in a can, and if you buy a can in 1960, it'll be good for, well, 2028, 2058. It just doesn't go bad it just stays in that can forever and ever and ever until you open it and then decide to cook something with it now don't get me wrong there are some foods in which spam is amazing you know spam with ramen a hawaiian thing um but needless to say there are some meals where you say you know what lol thank you for providing you know barley tack and spam, but um, we're going to go home and just drink water. <laughs> you know, that's all we want to do. And I find it interesting that John mentions this humble, humble offering. And I think it's important. I think it's important to realize how humble this offering is and how this offering is a blessing and a provision. And if you want to call it this, a redemption, because these people are weary and they would faint on the way home, the Lord had said. And then this, this literally, this, this humble offering was a redemption, a blessing for so many. And in order to receive it, this is what they had to do. Sit down. <laughs> stop. Stop striving. Stop looking. Stop doing anything. Just sit down. In groups of 50, 50 is a unique number in the scripture. We see that that is that number of Pentecost. It's, it's that number of, of the, the, the blessings where it's the jubilee, where everything is freed and the blessings of God flow. And what we see is this. I want to read you two passages, and I want you to see Jesus Christ as this type of offering. In Isaiah 53... Verses 2 and 3, just jot it down, but it says this about the Lord. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He's despised, and we did not esteem him. You understand? When God gives us the greatest gift, it is so humble. Jesus didn't come and wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. He didn't come and, and was, was lauded king through the entire nation of Israel. In fact, the ones that lauded him kings were kings of the east, the wise men. They came and said, where's he who's born king of the Jews? And what did the king at that time of the Jews want to do? He wanted to kill him. Went and killed all the children who were two and under in that area. And this is what we begin to see, and I want you to see how absolutely humble, how beautiful this offering is. When it comes to humility, when it comes to the greatness, we as men sometimes think that I got to give to God the very best. And he says, you have to understand that your very best really isn't a lot. But if you give to me what you have, just imagine what I can do with it. Sometimes giving to God the humble is the better. Remember the, the one widow woman? All these people were giving to the, the, the treasury of the temple. They're all putting stuff into the box. And this one widow, she came and she just gave a mite, which is like a quarter of a penny. And the Lord was kind of standing off to the side, and he didn't see what the people gave. He saw how they gave, how they gave. And it's amazing. He said, this one woman, she's given more than all, all of these other days sounding trumpets. They're all, look at what I'm doing. And there's this big parade, and look at how I'm putting all this money in. And he said, they, they're doing out of their abundance. But this, this one widow woman, she's giving everything she has. She's giving out of her need. And it's amazing that he recognizes her more than all the others. But what we see is this, when it comes to humility, there's a portion of scripture in the epistle to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to read to you just a, a portion of, of what this is. I want to start reading in verse 17. I'm going to read down to verse 31. So just bear with me as I go through this. But I want you to understand, have this in your mind as we read. Humility, pride. Just think of those as we go through this. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, I want you to see, he says, what I'm doing is I'm just simply declaring one thing. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's it. I'm not trying to wow you. I'm not trying to impress you. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can be wowed and impressed. When somebody simply opens the scripture and reads about the cross, tells you about Jesus Christ, not that impressive, unless what? Unless you're in love with Jesus and you realize I'm not the one that needs to be lifted up. It's him. And he says, I'm not doing it with impressive words. I want Jesus and the cross exalted. So it's not like, oh, my words swayed you. It's the spirit drawing you in. In verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, men, we think we're so wise. We think, I know how to get to God. I know what I can do. Wait, look at me, look at me. And God says, it can't be you. You have nothing to offer. I mean, think about this. What can you offer to God that he hasn't already created? I mean, let's say, let's just make a building and give it to God. Well, who supplied the material? Who created the tree? Who created gold? Who created silver? Do you understand? God created, we're just using what he created, trying to make something impressive. And guess what? He gives us the gift to create those things. We didn't make them of ourselves. It's not like we have this created. The Spirit impresses these things upon us. And I love what God does with all the wisdom of how we think we could know God. He says, I'm going to just blow your wisdom away and make it nothing because I'm going to say that you have to be nothing. You come to the cross empty, needing a Savior. Because when you come to the cross, you realize he's the one that does it. I can do nothing or I wouldn't come to the cross if I could do something. We come to this cross. And that's why he says it pleases God through the foolishness of the message that the wise people are now saying, you mean there's nothing I can do? No, there's nothing you can do. But it pleases, through, it pleases God through this message preached to save those who believe in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1, he then adds, For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, now, this is embarrassing because this is me. This is a calling. But he says this. You see your calling, brother. Do any of you want to serve God? This is, this is the, the, um, your resume. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've ever done a resume for a job. Say, here are my qualifications. Now, it's interesting. With a lot of resumes, people actually give their resumes to others. And what they're able to do is this. They're able to take something that the world would see as insignificant, change the way that it's written, and make you sound amazing. So, so you know, you could simply be a guy who cleans out barn, and all of a sudden, you're going to be what? You are an agricultural sanitation engineer. <laughs> Whoa. That's what I, Yes. You are an agricultural sanitation engineer. Like, that's me. And I put that on my resume. But here's what God says. I want you to see what he says about the resume. Verse 26, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And this is the heart. This is what he wants. And I love the heart of what we begin to see because when it looks to Christ and the cross and the redemption that we have, this is why Jesus did the sign. This is why he does the miracle of the 5,000. This is why Mark so distinctly says it was just this little boy with insignificant barley loaves and two small fish. The most humblest of provisions. Not great, not mighty, not wise, humble. And this small, humble offering became the redemption of blessing of everyone who would what? Who would just sit down and receive it. Who wouldn't strive and, and receive it. Who wouldn't keep looking and receive it. Believe that it would come and receive it. This is the key to understanding this passage. Now, when it comes to this whole issue of barley, I want you to be aware that it deals with the Passover, of course, because it was the, the one, the early grain that was there, and it was the, the first of the, the, the wave offerings that would come. But very uniquely, there is a portion in the book of Ruth, and I want to share it to you just so that you can kind of have an understanding of, of what we're seeing here. In the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 22. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, this is a woman who was a Gentile who is brought in through the marriage of a Jew. And, and so Ruth, being the, the, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, eventually what happens is this, that, that she now comes to this place where there is this man by the name of Boaz, and Boaz is what is known as the kinsman redeemer. He's a relative. Now, why is that important? Well, you have to have a relative who does the redemption process. And keep in mind that this is what Jesus does. God cannot simply redeem us. God had to become a man, in other words, a relative. He had to become one of us. And as a relative, then you can say, yeah, I can now redeem you because I'm a man who's going to redeem mankind, not simply God. God becomes a man, remains God, and still does this. But in the book of Ruth, it makes this statement in chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you understand that everything is written in this humble book of redemption of the kinsman redeemer? All this was written during the time of the barley harvest. And if you now begin to recognize this is a humble, do you understand the redemption of what she has where she's able to, to collect the basket and then Boaz gives her like 12 more baskets and, and, and all this is barley. All this is not the great and the mighty. All this is humble and where the world would see it as insignificant. But yet it became what? It became the redemption. 
And then through Ruth and through Boaz and through their children, eventually would come David the king and eventually would come Jesus. And I love the fact that what we're seeing here is that this whole book of Ruth with the beginning of the barley harvest, the redemption, very humble. But this is what God is able to do. And I want to share with you one passage to show you what God is able to do with humble and insignificant. If you are familiar with the book of Judges, there was one of the judges by the name of Gideon. Now, Gideon was a unique individual. What Gideon does is this. When we're introduced to Gideon, it simply declares this in his calling in chapter 6 that Gideon is doing something unique. He is threshing wheat in a wine press. Why is that important? Well, let me give you two locations. When you have a place that you want to thresh wheat on, you want to separate what is known as the chaff, the outer skin, from the, the wheat itself, from the grain itself. And so normally what would happen is this. When you're threshing the grain, you want to do it on a plateau somewhere high where the wind blows. And the wind blows the chaff away. So as you throw up the grain, the chaff, which is light, flies away, and the grain, which is heavy, falls to the ground. And it helps the process. Now, when you're in a wine press, you want it to be in a cave. You want it to be out of the wind so that nothing flies into the wine. You don't want stuff to blow into it. So keep in mind when it says that Gideon is threshing grain in a wine press, that he is hiding himself so that people doesn't, don't, doesn't, do not see him threshing the grain, and he's in a place where there's no wind. Now, I don't know what he's doing. He's throwing up. You know, how do you, how do you thresh? You're, you know, how do you get the wind to go in a wine press? And, and so he's here. He's here. He's threshing the grain in a wine press. It says, in order to hide it from the Midianites. And this angel comes and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon's like, Ooh. Well, eventually, you know what God does. God puts it upon Gideon's heart. He, he gets Gideon to the point where he knows and he knows this is God through different times that Gideon says, okay, can I do this? Can I do this? Gideon begins by making a clarion call to the nation Israel, and he does something amazing. He collects 32,000 men. 32,000, like, oh, this is huge, this is great. And then God says, you know what, Gideon, it, it's too many. It's too many, because if you have that, you're going to think, oh, you know, the, the glory. You're going to take some glory. Now, now, keep in mind that when he had those 32,000 men, that he was going up against the Midian army of what the scripture says is 135,000. Now, when you have 32,000, Against 135,000, that's a one in four odds. That's not good. But God says it's too many. He said, if everyone is afraid, he said, just let them go home. Guess what? 22,000 left. 
22,000 says one in four odds aren't enough for me. Now, now you think about it. They weren't Marines. Because when, when you're in the Marines, you know, one in four odds, we're okay. You know, I don't know what service they were in. I, I, I won't mention it. All I can say it was probably another service other than the Marines. Sorry, Don. It, it, it just comes out, Don. I don't know why. It just comes out. God said it's too many, and then what happens is 10,000 are left. So 10,000 against 134,000, that's one in, in, you know, in, in, in 13 odds. A few Marines would maybe even back out on that one. That's, that's, that's a lot. And God said, you know, it's, it's a little bit too many, still too many. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go down to a place of water, and, and it's going to be, we're going to look and see that the people are going to have a drink. And, and so what happens is this, that the people who, who reach down and, and, and cup some water and bring it up to their face, that's going to go in one group, and the people who actually put their face in the water, who, who bend down and put their face, that's in another group. You're going to separate them over there. And so uh, amazing, you have 10,000 people, and, and this is what's amazing. Only 300 reach down, and they, they pick it up, and, and they, they bring it to their, their, their face. Commentaries are unique in this passage, and what they do is they say that the reason why Gideon is choosing, God is choosing the people who are bringing it up to their face, is that they're observant. See, that they're watching around and making sure that everything is okay, and they're, 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 they're observant. They know what's going on. See, me being a ring, I don't think that. See, I think that there are most guys, the, the ones that are buff, they're just going to put their face right in the push-up. Whoa, drink my water. And the other guys that can't do a push-up, all they can do is <laughs> scoop in and, and pick it up, you know? Like, I, I, can't, I can't, if I got down there, I'm going to drown. I can't push myself back up. That's how I think of things. So I don't know. You choose which one you like. But keep in mind that the people who brought it up to their mouth, only 300 got, these are the ones I'm going to use. The ones that can't put their face in the water and get them back out. That's what he's choosing. Humble. Do you understand? The, 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 the humble. And there's a passage, and all this is building up to just an amazing passage in Judges chapter 7, verse 13. I want you to understand what happens when, when, when Gideon is still uncertain what to do. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go, and I'm going to let you hear what they're saying there in the camp of the Midianites as these 300 are going to face off against 135,000, one in 450 odds. That, that, that's, that's what you're looking at. And in verse 13, it says this, When Gideon came, there was a man telling a dream to his companion, and he said, I have had a dream, to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread. Isn't that amazing? This insignificant, humble loaf. A loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Verse 14, then his companion answered, said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel into his hand. God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. 
Do you understand? Even they knew that Gideon was not all that and more. It wasn't like this, this, this wheat loaf. He knew it was a humble, humble loaf. And God would say, I can't let you receive any glory. You can't use, you know, 32,000. You can't use the 10,000. You can only use 300. And do you know what they defeated him with? Torches and pots. Now, how does that work? What happened was this, and a trumpet, when you have these torches that were hidden inside the, the, the pots, when the pots were broken, then the torch shined. Do you understand? It was broken clay pots. You know what we are? We are on the potter's wheel. We are broken clay pots, but when light shines through us, and we proclaim the trumpet clarion call of the cross in Jesus Christ, victory. That's it. But, but you can't bring swords and, and, and arrows and bows. It was nothing. Humility. And I love the fact that here, this is the key. Now understand, and I do want you to be aware in Scripture, that this is not the first time that barley loaves were multiplied. If you're familiar, there's a portion of Scripture that is, 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 is unique, is different, but in 2 Kings chapter 4, let me simply read it to you. At the end of the chapter, verse 42 through 44. So 2 Kings chapter 4, so you know at this point, this is Elisha. It declares this, Then a man came from Baal, Shalisha. And brought the man of God, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread. It's important to note that. It's not the first time that barley is being multiplied. And so Elisha has it. He brings 20 loaves of barley bread. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. So he tells the servant, he says, give it to the people. And then notice what he does. He goes, the servant said, what? Because keep in mind, there's a lot of people here. And he goes, what, 20 loaves to the people? The servant said, what, shall I set this before 100 men? And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And I love it how here in the book of 2 Kings with Elisha, it's so simple. It just makes the, so it's like insignificant. All right. Make these few barley loaves, 20 in number, make them feed, you know, hundreds of men. And yet God did it. Now, when Jesus does it, he does what? Well, he does five loaves, a couple small fish who came from a small lad, and he uses it to feed 5,000 men and women and children. You guys know as well as I do that God is the provider. He's always been the provider. He declares he is the provider. This is who God is. In Matthew chapter 6, a couple of verses just to jot down as I go through these, verse 37 through 39, it simply declares this, but he answered and said, you, um, wait, let me back that up. <laughs> Matthew chapter 6, I jumped to Mark 6. First right letter, wrong rest of the letters. In Mark chapter 6, beginning in um, wait, Matthew chapter 6. That's why I'm getting confused here. Matthew 6, 
I want to start reading in verse 26, but it makes this statement. Matthew 6, 26, he said this, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In verse 31 through 33, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It's important to recognize it's all about God. It's about looking to God. It's about trusting God and, and really saying, God, that it's going to be you who does the providing. And when we recognize that, as we come to that clarity that it's God who does the providing, then all of a sudden we then recognize, as Paul would write to the church of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You're going to have what you need. And, and sometimes what happens is it happens to be sometimes humble. It happens to be sometimes not as great as we would want it to be, but it's always what we need it to be. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, And his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. This is it over and over again. He's always the provider. And once we come to that understanding, we begin to recognize, God, you've always been a provider. And he's proven it. I, I want to take you to a couple of passages in the Old Testament because I think it's key for you to recognize that this sign that Jesus does, this miracle that Jesus does in this humble amount that he does is really nothing for God. He's been doing this all along. There's a number of a passage you have to be aware of to, to kind of fit you in so that you have a clarity of all the rest of the scriptures, but it's found in the book of Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, I want to read verse 21 to you, and then I'm going to back it up and start reading from verse 16 to 32, but I want to read verse 21 these two times so you can really understand what happens here. In Numbers 11, chapter 21, it says this, Moses said, the people... Whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you said, I'm going to give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. So God says, I'm going to provide for 600,000 men meat for a month. Now understand that we're looking at 5,000 men. God said, I'm going to provide for 600,000 men plus women plus children. Do you understand that he's going to be providing for at least a million, possibly greater than a million? And so when he provides, he's going to provide meat for a month. But I do want you to understand something else that God provided manna every day for almost 40 years. Until they went into the promised land, he said, I'm going to provide for you. Do you realize that what Jesus does is what? It's a pittance. This is only 5,000 5, men plus women and children, and I just got to do it for one meal. Jesus said, listen, I've been doing it for years, 
and I provided for 600,000 men. Now, let me take you, now that you know that context, let me back it up to Numbers 11, verse 16. It said, the Lord asked, said to Moses, go gather me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. And I will come down and I will talk with you there and I will take of the spirit that is upon you and put it upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. And then you should say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat, and you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils, and it becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you, and if you've wept, before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? And Moses said to the people, I'm among the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. And yet you said, I'm going to give them meat and they'll eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and he placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and, and upon the same of the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, though they never did so again. And I think it's amazing to look to this and we see that, that God says, this is what I'm going to do. Now in verse 31, a wind went out from the Lord and he brought quail from the sea and he left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side, a day's journey on this side. So quail came, fluttered in the camp, a day's journey all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day and all that night and the next day. And they gathered the quail who had gathered. And he who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. In other words, 60 bushels of meat each. And that's who gathered the least amount of it. And they spread them all out for themselves all around the camp. Oh, we got meat to eat. God says, all I got to do is bring in a little wind. That's all. You know what he does? In, in the, the scripture, wind is, is the, the pneumos. It's also spoken of the spirit. Spirit just blows in the provision, whatever we need. And God says, and you're, you're, gonna, you're, you're begging for meat now. You're going to be so sick of it. By the time you're done, it's going to come out your nose. You're not going to want it anymore. And so uh, amazingly, we see here God, he is the provider. And he's always been the provider. So amazingly, we see that, that when it comes to the provisions of God, over and over again in Scripture, we begin to see that this is how God moves. This is how God works. 
Now, sometimes God will provide for the, the prophets. Other times God will provide for others along with the prophets. There's a portion of scripture I want to give to you just so you can kind of follow a flow. If you remember when the prophet Elijah was called on the scene, it was an amazing thing. Now, when Elijah was called there in 1 Kings 17, it simply opens up Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, you shall not see dew nor rain these years except at my word. So he gives a prophecy. His ministry is standing before a king proclaiming the word of the Lord and an authority. And the very next ministry, he's, in a sense, you think he's demoted, but he's not. He's still the prophet of God. In verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward by the brook of Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you will drink from the brook that I have commanded ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he stayed at the brook Cherith, which flows in the Jordan. And ravens brought him meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook now of all the the, the food that you get the food that ravens bring i don't know if you've ever seen where ravens shop <laughs> they they don't shop in the best of places what they do is this they shop on the side of the road and when enough cars are now passed and the meat is sufficiently ground up the ravens come and they pick out the pieces they want. And, and they're like, oh, wait, I can't eat this. This is for Elijah. Thanks, Lord. But he does. He doesn't say, Elijah, you're going to provide for yourself. He says, I'm providing ravens. Ravens are bringing food. And then eventually when the brook dries up, Verse 8 of First Kings 17 says this, And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Now arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. So you're going into Gentile territory. Dwell there. I've commanded a widow to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and he came to the gate of the city. Indeed, there's a widow gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Hey, bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, And please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So here's a widow. Now, I'm going to just be a, a, a killjoy because I'm going to tell you the end of it. So if you guys don't like surprises, then quick read it before I get done. All right, yet enough time. So what's happening, she's just gathering these sticks so she can make one last meal for her and her son so they can die. That's what she's going to do. She's gathering these sticks, one last fire, cook one last meal, and then they're going to die. And then this guy says, hey, bring me some water. <laughs> if I'm about to die, like, go get your own water. You know, why are you asking me? And then he said, oh, and then they're like, okay, fine, I'll get you water. And then, oh, by the way, while you're doing that, give me something to eat. Now, how many of you have a stranger come up while you're about to prepare your last meal, says, go get me water, I'll get you, and give me your last meal. And, and so it's interesting. He says, bring me this last. And so she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin, enough to make what? A little loaf, a little oil in a jar, and see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. We need provision, and I have very, very little. And Elijah said, verse 13, do not fear, 
go and do as I have said, but, but make a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterwards I will make, and afterwards bake some for yourself and your son. And so she did. She go and she made this little cake and brought it to him, and then she went and prepared. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up and the jar of oil nor the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rains upon the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word which the Lord, the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. You have to understand that, that a little is absolutely enough with God. Nothing is enough with God. Because if you have nothing, God will allow ravens to bring you what? Something humble. Something humble. And everything that we're looking at, I want you to understand, you see humility, humility, humility. Even in the, the, the meal that Elijah receives, humility from the ravens, humility from what? A widow? I'm here to let a widow provide for me. Now, in Scripture, what is it? Provide for the widows. Provide for the widows. And here... Elijah is so humbled, the widow is going to provide for me. And I think it's so important to realize that, that this is what John here is trying to teach us. That it's not in our wisdom, it's not in our strength, it's not in our might. It, it's taking whatever God puts in your hands, whatever it is that he does. And, and the key to it is, is this. In verse 11, it says, Jesus took the loaves and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them. It's gratitude. I don't need greatness to be gratitude. The fact that you would call me one who's unworthy, you get gratitude enough. I'm grateful enough. You don't have to provide anything else. I'm just grateful you've given me salvation. Everything else is what we call icing on the cake, right? And, and amazingly, not only does God give us icing on the cake, and then he gives us what? Those, those flower icings and the leaf icings and, the, the, and it's, just, it's just icing on icing. That's the best part of the cake, right? I mean, you know, you got cakes that are flat, and you got cakes that have all this other stuff on them. That's the one that, that when, when the little kids see it, what piece do you want? That one. <laughs> Adults were like, oh, I'll take the one without the frosting. <laughs> Some. But, you know, the little kid's like, that one, that one. I want icing on the icing on the icing, that one. And that's what God gives to us. He gives us the blessings, the best. And, and so when, when it comes to this, I think it's so important that when it comes to the provision, we have to understand that, that we will not nor can we provide. We're not the providers. Husbands, fathers, I hate to say you're not the provider. You're the giver. See, God gives to you, and then you simply meet it out. You're a steward of everything that God provides. And when we come to that, all of a sudden, our whole mindset is going to change. Because we're like, I provided for this family. You didn't provide anything. You, you, you worked in obedience to God. God provided through you. You're a steward of what God provided for this family. And when we understand that, I'm not the provider, nor can I provide. God does. And when God provides for the family, my job as a servant of the Lord, like the disciples, is to serve it. Just to serve it. 
And understand, everybody else is sitting down. Everyone else is sitting down. It's the disciples who have received it. It's the disciples who are giving it. And I think it's important, you know, I hate to say this, but I, I talk to, to young men who are getting married all the time. It's like, listen, you're not getting married so you have someone who will cook your, your food and, and serve you so you can come home from work and put your feet up like they did in the old TV shows and say, okay, woman, you know, where's my dinner? And I'll come and eat it, and then you'll do the dishes, and you'll take care of the kids, and I'll be there, you know, with my newspaper. Do you understand what these do? They receive it. And they distributed it. They're working. They're serving. And everybody else is doing what? They're sitting down. It's not expecting them to do the work. It's expecting them to receive from God. And to receive in a way that you know how I received. The disciples did nothing. In fact, they didn't even believe. What is this among so many? How can we do this? And it's amazing how when we look to what God provides. And, and we think, is it enough? Is it enough? It's always going to be enough. Look at the birds there. We've looked at those verses. Our God, our God is, is able to supply all your needs, all your needs. And I think it's important to look to this. And when it comes to verse 9, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves, insignificant humble bread. A little boy is what it is. There's a little boy five barley, humble, insignificant loaves, two small fish. What are they among so many? Let me give you one word. Sufficient. Let me give you another word now. Overly sufficient. Abundant. Because what happens? Believe it or not, they have 12 baskets left over. You think it's sufficient? No, not. See, God doesn't just do sufficient. God does abundant. Scripture says this, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. That's how he does it. There's always extra. When, when he does the feeding of the 4,000, seven baskets. You know, there, there's always more. There's always more. And so you give a little, you thank God for what it is. You put it there in the hands of Jesus and you watch and see what he does to it. Now, when you say, no, I'm going I'm to hold on to this, and I'm going to be the one, you, you guard it. There's no more. You understand? It, it, eventually, it's consumed. You, you come to God with an open hand. He puts in, he takes out. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, God is the one that puts in a lot more than he takes out. But he wants to be willing. Are you willing to give? Because remember now, first you had to have this put in the Lord's hands. Once it's in his hands, he supplies abundantly to this. And may we be these people who know that God is our provider. And, and he's going to provide, sometimes not in those things that are extravagant, but always those things that keep us humble to keep us recognizing, Lord, you are the giver. And you're the supplier. And you always supply sufficiently and so often abundantly. May we come to that conclusion in our own hearts and in our walks. Amen? Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this word. Only you would, would allow John to make these distinctions and for us to simply focus on them this morning as we go through this word. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that it is truly about humility 
Jesus, you had no former comeliness. It's you, you chosen the foolish things, the, the weak things, the base things. Oh my goodness, Lord, you want to keep us humble. But as we are come humble, you, you lift us up. But we can lift it up. You, you humble us. Teach us what it is to have this mindset to, to offer, not in the greatness, but in the humility, knowing that the disciples were bringing stuff that wasn't even theirs. <laughs> it wasn't even theirs. And yet it was uh, something they brought, something that was provided. And may we recognize, Lord, that, that in, in our giving things of you that you've given to us, we just hand it right back to you, Lord. And as we allow you to reveal your glory and your greatness, your exceeding greatness as we read this morning, that you would truly teach us what it is to be your children. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.